1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today we have a special feature. It's not just the police, it's also the prosecutors and their reliance on forensics who create much of the injustice in the American justice system. Despite the portrayal on TV of forensic analysts on the show CSI as crime-solving seekers of truth, Prominent scientists and criminal justice experts have questioned whether suspects really can be identified by forensic techniques like matching bite marks, hairs, shoe prints, and tire tracks. Me and Chris and Tim Reckworth will explain. They're the co-authors of a major piece of reporting of the new issue of The Nation. It's called The Crisis in American Forensics. But first... Maybe you heard the news. Tuesday night, Trump delivered his State of the Union speech. Harold Meyerson has our analysis. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page and other publications. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back.
2: It's great to be here, John.
1: Harold, we want to ask you two questions. The first one is, what did Trump's teleprompter say about the State of the Union? And the second one is, what do you say about the real State of the Union? But before we talk about Trump's speech, I have a preliminary question. Why pay attention to Trump's State of the Union at all? Is there something that we don't know about him that we need to find out? So what if he says he's for parental leave or supporting the vets? Don't we know these are meaningless statements? Why should we be even interested in Trump's State of the Union speech?
2: Well, one of the unusual things about Trump's State of the Union speech was that he didn't actually get to any proposals until about a half hour into the speech. <laughs> uh-huh. It was sort of a, a, a talk show where he kept introducing people in the gallery. I think in future years, maybe he should be in the gallery, and then <laughs> the people up there should give the speech. I mean, he <laughs> given given the, the time allotment devoted to that. But there were a few things in the speech that were worth noticing. Thing one was that he led with the state of the economy, and that was the part of the speech. And it was good that they put that up front, because uh, by the time he got to the latter half of the speech, anyone outside of the Republican base would have fallen asleep. And the, (laughs) uh, the point about putting the economy first was that that's their point of outreach that they hope will uh, save their bacon in November, the state of the economy. I mean, Trump claiming credit for the state of the economy reminds me of former Texas Governor Ann Richards' famous line about George H.W. Bush, that he was born on third base and thought he hit a triple uh, (laughs) since the recovery has been going on for seven full years already, of which Trump came in in year seven. Other than that, there were hardly any notable things in the speech, except a one-liner, which we actually had not heard from him before, in which he said he would like Congress to give cabinet members essentially the ability to hire and fire at will their many employees, who of course have civil service protections right now, and most government agencies are covered by a union contract. So, this was a little sly thing to entrust to such dedicated defenders of the unbiased research that civil servants do in agencies like uh, the EPA. I'm sure we can trust Scott Pruitt to be prudent in, in his selections of who stays and who goes at EPA, or Betsy DeVos at Education, or Jeff Sessions in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. So really, that was new, and that was, I thought, a kind of ominous note. I don't, I don't imagine that would get anywhere in the Senate since the Democrats could refuse to vote for it and require sixty votes for it but it was a uh, kind of an ominous continuation of the republicans actually their war on empiricism i mean you know part of the thing is we don't want a government that actually can count because it's the government can count it can come up with data like, well, the crime rate among immigrants is actually significantly lower than the crime rate among Native-born Americans. Hey, so, yes. God forbid we have a disinterested civil servant who comes up with, with a fact like that. So, you know, what the implications of what Trump is proposing is getting rid of those civil servants before they actually reveal such horrifying facts as that.
1: I was following on Twitter as he was speaking and the fact checkers were just having a nervous breakdown trying to correct all of his false facts. One person tweeted, the fact checker should identify the true statements in his speech rather than the false ones. That seems a good idea, yes. So we could spend a whole hour just running through all the false statements he made. You took a slightly different approach. You timed the different parts of his speech, and that actually turned out to be quite revealing, what he devoted the most time to and what got very little time.
2: Well, he devoted the most up front to the economy because, as I said, that's the only way i think the republicans have a path to holding on to, to congress in uh, in november but number two the great uh... threat that americans face was ms thirteen yeah. uh, a gang of chiefly salvadoran immigrants I, I was struck by the fact that you know part of the state of the union is always to enumerate things that americans need to be concerned about and watch carefully and so he devoted one sentence to china and russia not each, one sentence each, one sentence in which he lumped both of them together as, you know, uh, folks we need to uh, keep an eye on, uh, and eight minutes to uh, to MS-13, which was uh, an interesting assessment of the, of the threats to civilization yes. that uh, the United States confronts. Uh, probably about three, four minutes to ISIS, but, but eight minutes to uh, to MS-13. And I thought that was really pretty remarkable. That was for his base. That was... Uh, the justification for uh, all the nativist nonsense, for the border wall, for ICE continuing to break up families, and for an immigration policy that uh, only admits Scandinavians. So it's hard to imagine why at this point in American history a Scandinavian would actually want to move here.
1: And, And he went back and forth. I was a little confused by this. He went back and forth between the dreamers with MS-13? I I didn't know that the Dreamers had anything to do with MS-13.
2: Your view is shared by anyone who's uh, looked at this issue for more than a nanosecond. They don't. MS-13 justifies all of the nativist—I think the term is horseshit, actually—that the administration puts out. But he was obviously linking them together, which was a slander of historic proportions.
1: And uh, he he packed the gallery with sobbing parents whose children had been murdered, and he told us this was a tragedy. Well, of course, it is a tragedy when kids get killed, but this seemed to be sort of exploiting these, these uh, parents' uh, losses to promote uh, uh, an agenda that I think we have to call cruel.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was exploiting the loss of these kids, so... Who uh, you know were completely innocent, uh, the kids who were killed, so that he can deport more completely innocent kids. So it is really kind of a completely sinister and uh, evil, I think, would, would be the word, uh, calculation on uh, on the, the part of the White House.
1: Now, thus far, we have not mentioned what the mainstream media have seen as the central message of the State of the Union speech, to quote from the LA Times lead of their headline story today, President Trump tried to shed the polarizing image and words that have stunted his popularity by recasting himself on Tuesday as a unifying figure. He said, quote, "...tonight I call upon all of us to set aside our differences, to seek out common ground, and to summon the unity we need to deliver for the people." Close quote. The byline on that was Noah Bierman. Uh, How have you managed to overlook Trump's uh, shedding this polarizing
2: image? (laughs) Sheer carelessness on my part. We'll see how long this tone lasts. It goes against, I think, Trump's DNA, actually, to be able to maintain uh, the rhetorical stance. And of course, even as he was tonally, you know, not inflammatory, tonally. He was substantively inflammatory with things like, again, conflating MS-13 with the Dreamers. There were these one-liners in the speech, you know, were lip service to uh, things that, you know, non-Republicans might uh, might relate to, like prison reform, of course. You know, does this mean that the Republicans in Florida are going to let, uh, you know, former felons vote? No. There there were one-liners that I think have no no actual bearing on where the administration is going to go as it merrily plans uh, deportations and curtailments of civil rights and uh, handing out gobs of money to uh, uh, the corporate uh, donors.
1: He did propose uh, what he called a major infrastructure uh, plan. I loved Paul Krugman tweeted as he began that segment of the speech, oi, here comes the infrastructure scam.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, going into the speech, the plan was we should have a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan, for which the feds would provide only uh, two hundred billion. So uh, this was uh, raised in the speech to uh, a trillion and a half dollar infrastructure. Well, that's plan better. Which is that's better for which the feds will still supply just two hundred uh, billion. So I mean, this is a little like if. An administration has a stimulus program and takes credit for all the retail sales in the country. Uh, you know, we put this amount of money into the economy, and there were a trillion-dollar retail sales, so we put in $200 million, And there were, in the private sector, a matching trillion-dollar in retail sales, so we had a $1.2 trillion Stimulus, or uh, you know, it's like having a tax cut. Be a Republican uh, for a minute. It's like cutting taxes and then adding whatever tax cuts the states individually did or cities individually did. I mean, it's 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 the most obvious form of false advertising, and it's. $200, $200 billion from the federal government is woefully insufficient. I mean, if, if you're asking states and localities which don't have the capacity to deficit spend, as the federal government does, to come up with 80 percent or 70 percent in the private sector to come in with the last 10 percent, say, it ain't going to happen. Uh, states and localities don't have the money. The feds do have the money, but it ain't coming.
1: There was another thing that bothered me about the State of the Union speech. Trump said he wants to stop the drug dealers and pushers behind the opioid a- epidemic, but he didn't say exactly who the drug dealers and pushers are. Could you help
2: us with that? Well, he didn't say who they are, and he didn't say what he would do. He just said he wants to, uh, to stop them. Um, obviously, opioids tend to be manufactured by pharmaceutical companies. Yes. And uh, so far, we, we don't know anyone from... Uh, any of the major pharmaceutical companies uh, that have been put on notice that uh, you know, that there are consequences for them if they keep peddling this stuff. A lot of the speech was, was, was purely abstract, one-liners that didn't actually connect, as I'm sure many of the fact-checkers pointed out, to uh, actual reality, and and this is a case where this stuff is legally obtainable, and uh, there are plenty of physicians and plenty of drug companies who uh, you would think would would be put on notice after the speech last night, and I'm uh, existentially certain that none of them have been.
1: (laughs) Good point. Let's switch gears here and talk about the real state of the union. The, the New York Times editorial page on Wednesday uh, had a good argument about the real state of the union. They agreed with Trump's opening statement that the state of America is strong. And they also agreed that Trump deserves much of the credit. But the reason they gave is, quote, the reaction against his authoritarian impulses against his assault on truth and against his cruelties great and petty, has revealed abiding American strengths, close quote. I thought that was a nice way of thinking about it.
2: It was a very nice way of thinking about it. If if you look at the metrics, but even if you look at the metrics that are conventionally uh, adduced as uh, indices of American strength, like uh, strong foreign alliances, well, those are all gone, or you know a, a fundamentally secure economy, and while it's true that unemployment has uh, has dropped, almost all the jobs being created are uh, independent contractor, are gig jobs, or job staff benefits, uh, and God knows Trump has poisoned the uh, the racial and gender and every other kind of well. Uh, so uh, I, I think the Times is to be commended for saying the, the the main index of American strength is a pushback against Trump.
1: I have to admit, I didn't make it to the end of the speech. I got uh, I got a little bored <clears throat> after about an hour and just checked to see what was on Turner Classic Movies, TCM. They were showing King Kong, which I thought was fantastic counter-programming. I had
2: noticed that,
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, when Trump got to ISIS, I fell asleep, and so... I missed the Democratic uh, responses. There were a lot of Democratic responses, three or four. There were.
2: There were. There was uh, the young Kennedy as the official English language response. There was the Spanish language response. There was uh, Bernie Sanders gave his own response. Uh, The Working Families Party uh, had uh, Donna Edwards, former member of Congress, giving giving a response. I, I think among Democratic progressives, the model for this, if you think back, is that in, the, uh, in Obama's first term, after the first year, there was a uh, Republican response and a separate Tea Party response, yeah. which the networks aired, at least most of the networks aired. And so I, I think what, what, what we're getting is somewhat overlapping messages reflecting the progressive push uh, in the Democratic Party. And that's not a bad thing. And given you know, how many people actually pay attention the opposition party's response. I don't think it really takes away from Kennedy that, uh, or or the party officials that there were uh, that there were more responses. And this is one of those instances where I, I, I think a chorus is not necessarily a bad thing. And I think it was more a chorus than uh, uh, dissonant notes.
1: Last year, Trump did not give a State of the Union speech. He'd, he had just taken the oath of office, but he did give a address to the joint congressional session. And that was the first time he had a tearful uh, widows in the gallery. There was a tearful widow of a fallen Navy SEAL, and, uh, to Trump paid tribute to. And at that point, Van Jones said on CNN that Trump, quote, became president of the United States in that moment. Uh, close quote, I didn't hear anybody declaring that last night's speech made Trump president of the United States. Maybe the pundits have have uh, learned something about the sobbing uh, mothers in the galleries.
2: I, I think so. I mean, I think that there's an understanding now that he, the nation is so divided and that he has played a major role in dividing it that he remains president of the Republican base and uh, the Republicans are going to have to get lucky and work like hell and play the economy for them to claim to hold on to their uh, congressional majorities in November. But I think the completely sectarian nature of the Trump presidency is so well established that you're not going to hear anyone saying what Banjump said last year.
1: And I thought that uh, our, our friend E.J. Dion made an excellent point. He said Trump said he was asking Democrats to set aside their differences. In fact, he was asking them to abandon their own views. Nothing in the speech will inspire his critics with new hope that Trump is serious about negotiating anything. That seems like a, a excellent conclusion to me.
2: Yeah, it does. Uh, EJ is usually very right about such things, and he's right about this. The outreach, when it was there, was either faux outreach, entirely re- rhetorical, or tossed off without any substance, like the thing about paid family leave. Trump has done nothing to uh, diminish the the, the state of, uh, of political warfare, which he has, uh, which he's not only has stoked, but which he has uh, at least, uh, in, in terms of winning the White House in twenty sixteen. Which he uh, thrived by virtue of.
1: Harold Meyerson, he's got a great piece on the State of the Union at prospect.org. You can read it now. Harold, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show.
2: Always great to be here, John.
1: Now it's time to talk about bad prosecutors and phony forensics. It's not just the police, it's also the prosecutors and their reliance on forensics who create much of the injustice in the American justice system. Despite the portrayal on TV of forensic analysts on the show CSI as crime-solving seekers of truth, prominent scientists and criminal justice experts have questioned whether suspects really can be identified by forensic techniques like matching bite marks, hairs, shoe prints, tire tracks, even fingerprints. According to the Innocence Project, faulty forensic science is a factor in nearly 50% of wrongful convictions. For comment, we turn to me and Christ and Tim Reckworth. They're the co-authors of a major piece of reporting in the new issue of The Nation. It's called The Crisis in American Forensics. Mian Christ is writer in residence in biological sciences at Columbia University. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, the London Review of Books, Scientific American, and Science. Mian Christ, welcome.
3: Hi, John. Thank you for having us.
1: And her co author is Tim Reckworth. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Slate foreign policy, and scientific American. He received his PhD in neuroscience from Columbia University, where he also taught biology, chemistry, and science writing. Tim Reckworth, welcome.
4: Thanks, John, for having me on the show.
1: First question. You guys say DNA testing is science, and forensics is, quote, barely science at all. What makes them different?
4: That's a great question. DNA is based on scientific principles that were fully tested in labs before they made it into the criminal justice system. The principles underlying it, such as the variation in genetic frequencies throughout the population, are well characterized, and things such as how often a mistake can be made can be quantified and expressed in court. Some of the other methods that you referred to, such as bite marks, fingerprints, are based on the subjective judgment of trained examiners. As such, they have not had the same level of objective validation as something like DNA has.
1: The only problem that I know of with DNA is what we saw in the OJ trial, the chain of custody. Defense attorneys have gone after the question of the handling of the DNA evidence, but once that is resolved, you're satisfied that DNA evidence does have a fully scientific basis. Is that right?
4: Yes, John. If done correctly, uh, as you refer to, if there are handling issues or issues in the crime lab, that can introduce errors, but if done correctly, DNA analysis is accurate, and I should also add that that includes it being taken from a high-quality sample and a single source of DNA. There are other ways in which law enforcement uses DNA analysis that can be less reliable, but the important point is that this can be tested. It typically has been tested, and you can express very clearly how accurate it is in courts.
1: In your article in The Nation, you give an example of the abuse of forensics by prosecutors. It's a case in Grand Junction, Colorado, involving uh, a man convicted of first-degree murder in a series of bombings. Tell us briefly about that Colorado bombing case.
3: In the early 90s in Grand Junction, Colorado, There was a series of pipe bombs that really rocked the town. It it was at the time about 30,000 people and, you know, having bombs go off and it killed two people and injured one. And so having this series of bombs go off really scared people. They brought in the FBI, uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, and they sort of, you know, came up with this guy, Jimmy Genrick. So the case against him is really interesting because there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that, could be read as potentially not damning, but sort of disturbing. So he had a history of mental illness. ATF agents found a series of disturbing handwritten notes in his boarding house where he was sort of expressing frustration about women not liking him and threatening violence against women. But they didn't ever find things like gunpowder. There were no reliable witnesses. There was no confession. So the only physical evidence that ever linked him to these bombs was testimony by an FBI forensic examiner who said he had matched tools found in Jimmy's boarding house with marks that were found on recovered bomb fragments from the bomb site. So scratches and striations that could have been made by a tool like pliers, you know, tightening the cap on a pipe bomb.
1: Let's talk specifically about the tool mark analysis. What were the expert claims, and and what do you think about the evidence in that case?
4: The expert in this case, who was actually at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, he matched four pieces of evidence to Mr. Genrick's tools. And these are microscopic striations that if you zoom in, you can line them up and come to the conclusion that those tools, to the exclusion of any others, must have made those marks. While there are some uses for this sort of evidence, you could, for example, rule out that it was perhaps a large set of pliers versus a small set of pliers, it's very difficult to make a claim that this was Mr. Genrick's tool to the exclusion of all others in the world. And one reason is that, A, he didn't test every other tool in the world to see if it could have left those same marks, and B, there hasn't been any research to show how likely is it that two tools could, by coincidence, leave the same mark. And this is what's so dangerous about this type of evidence, is it's very visually compelling. It looks like they're a match, but what you don't know is what you don't know you have no idea if there are other tools that could have by coincidence made those matches and the tools that Mr. Genrick used were extremely common. They're not exotic bomb making tools. These are pliers, $3 wire strippers. In fact, his lawyer, the, uh, this trial lawyer at the time that we spoke to, said she owned a pair. One of his friends that we spoke to when we visited grand junction said I owned like three pairs. Mm-hmm. So the basic premise is questionable.
1: And then there's the bite marks, uh, let's call it, scientific claims about being able to identify unique bite marks. You talk about the Journal of Forensic Sciences where there was an article that claimed a coincidental match of bite marks would occur in less than one quadrillion cases. That's, That's totally convincing. What did you find?
4: Well, it is convincing, and we went and looked at that paper, and I've looked at a lot of scientific papers. We both have. We're both science writers, and what that paper was a theoretical calculation based off of an arbitrary number of positions that teeth could take in someone's mouth, and then calculating as if they could all move, uh, be in each position independently, and simply multiplying those numbers together. That, is, that problem is uh, highly reduced. It's highly unrealistic, and that's the sort of evidence that they're bringing in to support their points. Not the real, the real question that matters in court, which is how often does a bite mark examiner make a mistake? And now when someone actually tested them, it seems that on average they make mistakes about one in six times. So one in six times that they're in court testifying that it's one in a million, one in a billion, whatever they say, they're actually wrong one out of six times. And that's a huge problem in the criminal justice
3: system. And I would add to that, it's a problem because it's so convincing to jury. You know, if you have an expert who gets up there and says, Uh, You know, no one in our field makes any mistakes, or we only make mistakes one in 10 quadrillion times. Therefore, basically what I'm telling you is a proven scientific fact, and it must be correct. The jury takes that very, very seriously, and that testimony can be damning. It would be different if an expert got up and said, well, given what we know about bite marks or given what we know about tool marks, Um, You know, our examiners make mistakes about one in a hundred times. I think that this is a match, but just so you know, we do make mistakes one in a hundred times. The jury might take that evidence into consideration very differently. Um, And this is part of why prosecutors really don't want to give up this tool. You know, having an expert who can walk into a courtroom and say with utter scientific certainty, you know, with all the authority of science behind them, that this is a match is very, very convincing to juries.
1: So they've been wrong about bite marks matching about one in six times. You found an astounding error rate for hair examiners. How often do hair examiners uh, come up with a false match of two samples of hair?
4: Well, if you listen to testimony in court, you'd find that it was about one in 10 million. But when it was actually tested, it was closer to one in nine.
1: Wow. In 2009, you report the National Academy of Sciences performed the most sweeping independent survey of the state of forensic science to date. Uh, Tell us what they concluded.
3: The NAS really looked broadly at the forensic fields, and they discovered, as they say, a field in disarray. There were no standards that were set up across different labs there were practices that were kind of all over the place that were, nothing was in place to make sure that bias wasn't creeping into the system. Some labs were not accredited, some were accredited. Those accreditation procedures were different across different labs and in different states. There was not a lot of foundational similarity across the forensic disciplines, even just across different crime labs. But what they also found that was sort of more alarming was that there was really no scientific support for some of the pattern-matching disciplines. So those are things like bite marks, hair analysis, you know, matching shoe prints, you know, matching tool marks. And examiners have been testifying with this kind of overblown certainty in courts for decades. But NAS looked around and said, but there's no studies that say that you can do what you say you can do. And that was a huge problem.
1: I know that prosecutors are eager to convict, but not all judges have that same eagerness, and surely defense attorneys have tried to convince judges and appeals judges and maybe even the Supreme Court that there's a problem with forensic evidence. What about the, the critics of forensics?
4: John, I'm really glad that you brought up judges, because this isn't a problem that's limited to prosecutors uh, or the forensics community. Judges have played a huge role in keeping uh, unproven science in court, and here's the basic way that it works. Prosecutors uh, or defense, anybody really can introduce a piece of scientific evidence in front of a judge. If it's new, they'll have to have a special hearing where they evaluate whether it meets certain criteria. Those criteria vary from state to state, but they are along the lines of, is it accepted by the relevant scientific community? And more recently, can it make testable claims and provide error rates? That was a more recent ruling in the Supreme Court in 1993. What happens is that judges are not scientists. They don't go back to the original papers and read them and consult with scientists and come up with a seasoned opinion of whether something has proven itself to be scientifically valid. What they typically do instead is cite precedent. And precedent simply means rulings that judges have made in the past. So if, for example, bite marks is a great example. Bite marks got into the courts out of a single case in 1974 when a man was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. And that gets, and then other courts will cite that case to say, let's let bite marks in. Well, this original case never presented evidence. They trusted the expertise of the authorities. They trusted the methodology because they used 3D imaging. They had a lot of terminology. And now you have this situation where people get wrongfully convicted using bite marks and exonerated by DNA later. And yet, those legal rulings, even when they resulted in an exoneration, still stand as precedent and can still be cited by other judges. So in this way, legal rulings substitute for scientific proof. And so even though there's been measures to try to keep pseudoscience or unproven science out of courts, in fact, we sort of created the perfect conditions to keep them in.
1: Okay. The judges haven't been sufficiently aware of the problems here, but what about the attorneys general? I assume Jeff Sessions probably is not very interested in the challenges to forensic evidence, but what about Obama's attorney generals? What about Loretta Lynch?
4: That's a good question. Jeff Sessions has a proven record of opposing these kinds of reforms, and it's easy to make him a scapegoat for this, but Loretta Lynch opposed a lot of Reform recommendations as well. I think this speaks to the larger issue that a culture of prosecution is not consistent with the culture of science. They have a strong incentive not to scale back on these techniques that are so useful in court and not uh, revisit wrongful convictions. And so you see resistance in almost any prosecutorial agency.
3: I would add to that prosecutors, whether they're in the Obama administration or the Trump administration, have a vested interest in resisting reform because it could weaken one of the most powerful tools. It could threaten cases currently underway. It could call past convictions into question. And it really creates a, a serious conflict of interest in having prosecutors involved at any level in reform. Because prosecutors and forensic examiners work very closely together. You know, law enforcement is this large group of people who are collecting evidence and analyzing it and taking it to court. And so, Forensic examiners and prosecutors and investigators really feel like they're all on the same team. Um, And so when we talk about reform, the idea that the DOJ now, under Trump, has really taken all all of forensic science reform and put it under the auspices of the DOJ is incredibly problematic. They should not be the ones who are in charge of overseeing reform. And, in fact, they shouldn't be in charge of oversight of the forensic sciences at all.
1: So who should be in charge of the oversight of reform?
3: One of the first recommendations of the NAS report was that there should be an independent body. So the National Institute of Forensic Sciences would be able to make recommendations about reform, would be able to give out money for research, and would really create a culture of science where there has not been one thus far.
1: I want to end up by going back to the Colorado Bombers conviction. This guy has been in prison for a quarter of a century, but now his case is being appealed by the Innocence Project. Tell us how the appeal is going.
3: These big national reports that came out, there was the National Academy of Sciences in 2009, and then the PCAST report that came out in 2016. These have really provided tools for lawyers that want to go back and challenge rulings where they think that, you know, someone has been convicted and should not have been convicted. If you don't have a reason to, to go back and, you know, appeal someone's case, you, you can't go back and get it out of the court. So what the Innocence Project is doing is saying that there has been a change in the scientific consensus around tool mark analysis specifically in this case. Because these big national reports have come out saying this community is in disarray, there is no scientific foundation for these methods, the testimony that experts are giving in court seems to be based more on subjective experience than on science, the Innocence Project is sort of taking those reports and going back to the appeals court in Colorado and saying this man was convicted based on forensic evidence that now no longer looks like science.
1: Um, And he deserves to have his case heard again. Me and Chris and Tim Reckworth are co-authors of a major piece of reporting and analysis in the new issue of The Nation. It's the cover story. It fills the entire body of the magazine. It's called The Crisis in American Forensics. You can read it online at thenation.com starting Thursday. Me and, and Tim, thanks for this stunning work. Thanks for talking
4: with us today. Thanks for having
3: us
1: on the show, John. Thank you very much. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's Sports Editor. This week, Dave talks about USA Gymnastics and Michigan State, how a university and an entire system failed a generation of athletes. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash Edge of Sports. The up
3: the pitches, your bad,
1: right? Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.